Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Church were difficult, to put it lightly. The theology was still evolving despite rapid growth in membership, and members of the church had run into problems both with the government and their neighbors. In this episode, we'll follow those continuing issues with both the law and citizens as the early Mormons searched for a home. Let's begin. We're here on HI 101 with Gary, Hall- Gary Hallman. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. I'm ready, ready for the growth. Excellent. Yeah, last time we we just kind of got to this, the point where the Mormon church was just barely taken off. And we got ourselves a charismatic new preacher. We got all the troublemakers sent off west to to find the new Jerusalem. Yeah, we're, we're in the great state of Ohio. We're in the great know, state of Ohio. Arguably the best state. It turns out Kirtland, Ohio is the new Zion. Yeah, you know, it's the, it's the original city of champions in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> um. I don't know. There's something so interestingly and like quintessentially American about Mormonism where that whole like American exceptionalism is baked right oh, yeah, into the whole thing. Oozes. And just the idea that Ohio, like, I don't know, everything, everything else in terms of religion seems to have this like ancient gravitas. And like when you talk about like Jerusalem being the holy city, it's like, yeah, that makes sense to me because it's so old and there's so much culture and tradition there. And then someone comes to you and they're like, yeah, Kirtland, Ohio, that's where it's at. Yeah, what? but I mean, even even in terms of like American mythologies, it's still kind of on the lower end. It's not like, oh, you know, on this date in Philadelphia or Washington, it's yeah, no, nope. Boston is the chosen. No, we're nope. we're in Ohio now. <laughs> we're in Ohio, and not even a, a city I had ever heard of before researching this. But you know what? That's where we found a very charismatic preacher in the form of Sidney Rigdon. And he brought with him over a hundred followers, ready to go. Let's start this whole Mormonism thing. So we're we're up and running now. We're up and running now, and this is an interesting era in the church because, on one hand, you've got all of these followers in Ohio, but at the same time, you know, Coterie Whitmer, all of them are still heading west, and they end up in Missouri. That's where they find like a lot of people that they're gonna just go to town on, evangelizing to, trying to spread the word about Mormonism. So. At this point in time, like, how close are we to the frontier at this point? Pretty close. Like, we're okay. creeping up on it. Like, we're, we're still talking. The Louisiana Purchase has happened. Okay. So we've got all of that area, like, west of the Mississippi. But basically only up to the Mississippi is, like, organized territory, which means that, like, it's actually a state. It actually has, like, proper government, proper laws, uh, sends representatives to... Congress, yeah. Yeah. 
all of that stuff. The rest of it is like unorganized territory, which means that it's, so it's practically like, lawless. Yeah, know? it's like a protectorate of the U.S. Or? Yeah, it's got some limited legal standing under the federal government, but doesn't have any state level government against it. There's a lot of stuff at this point where uh, the borders of where Native Americans are supposed to live keeps shifting. I mean, this is the era of like the Trail of Tears where, you know, you have countless Native Americans being pushed out into the plains because the United States has basically decided everything east of the Mississippi is, well, white country, let's call it what it is. And there's a lot of uncertainty around this unorganized territory, right? And Missouri at this point in time is way bigger than what we would think of as like the state of Missouri. Okay. It's like, it's it's a territory and it's it's rather, rather large. I mean... All, all of this like unair- unorganized territory. Sometimes you'll hear it talked about in like westerns and stuff and stuff as Indian country or Indian yeah. territory. That's what they're talking about. It's it's unorganized territory where you know that's where they're okay with Native Americans living. Which is so this seems like fer- fertile ground for you know what they're trying to do there. Like I'm sure it attracts a very eccentric sort of person to live in that. Sure. But that part of the country and you know missouri is 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 just like just been incorporated like it is okay. technically you know it's it's under jurisdiction and the bulk of the mormons aren't going to end up there for a few more years but um they're, they're still hanging out in ohio which is very much a state at this point in time and as much as they're trying to get set up in that sort of frontier land this is also a time where the frontier is moving very quickly okay like they're not really able to outrun it at least yet um but they are definitely looking for kind of new ground for themselves right because they realize they don't really fit in that well and honestly the people that they live around don't really appreciate them that much for the most part um they're seen as eccentric weirdos and you kind of understand why i mean the church is only a year or two old they're following this upstart treasure hunter joseph smith who might be trying to commit fraud and you know, this this preacher, Rigdon, who has a history of, you know, charismatic leadership, which, you know, even at this point in U.S. history is seen as kind of uncouth. Yeah, you, they're, they're, that you, you want to keep an eye on that guy. Yeah, for sure. And so they're not entirely sure about these Mormon folk. They don't necessarily even uh, understand a lot of the finer theological points that you and I were talking about last time that would really make them dislike the mormons okay but they know that there's something else extra going on and they're talking about you know jesus coming to america and things like that and that just doesn't sit right with a lot of folk so anyways coterie goes out and he discovers the city of independence missouri and he figures you know what this is a really good place to settle down relatively unsettled at this point in time good land lots of space and he writes back to Smith and says, I've found like the actual like site of the news ion. This is where it's going to be. And it's kind of like, well, that's confusing because I thought it was in Kirtland, Ohio, but they both go to work kind of in their own respective spots. Okay. It's like, well, we'll cover our bases. It's fine. Besides, Rigdon doesn't really want to move. His entire congregation is from Ohio. He's got everybody established there. Heading out to Missouri is not like the smallest deal. Like, they don't necessarily They're going to uproot, uproot and move yeah. to the other side of the country, basically. Exactly. Exactly. And Rigdon is kind of the voice of the church at this point in time. So, you know, they have to listen to him quite a bit. They change their name at this point to Church of the Latter-day Saints, which is uh, an, an acknowledgement of the fact that there's still direct divine contact. Yeah. Um, this idea that the sainthood didn't stop, you know, 
centuries and centuries ago with uh, with the apostles. It's it's an ongoing uh, exercise of, of direct divine intervention. And the church at this point looks a lot like a lot of these other tent revival places. There's a lot of, you know, speaking in tongues at meetings and things like that, this sort of ecstatic experience of, of religion. So in a lot of ways, it looks a lot like these other ministers that are going around and preaching. There's yeah. not a lot to distinguish, though. You have to kind of like go down into the nitty gritty. Oh, yeah. Before before you start to see the like, you know, wide chasm of well, and theological differences. The most problematic theological differences haven't really been hammered out yet. Okay. Smith is still like refining a lot of those ideas as he goes. Uh, in fact, at this point, he actually issues a series of revelations that uh, you know, really lock down his his place at the head of the church. Things like uh, only he could receive new commandments from God as the head of the church. That you know, basically God came to him and told him he he would be the only one getting these messages. And again, like another warning, like if you're hearing some sort of divine voice, it's probably not God. It's probably it's demons probably the devil trying to trick you into something. So. You know, let me know if you hear that stuff, but don't listen to it. Now, in 1833, this is the first time that polygamy comes into the Mormon church. This is the first recorded secret practice of plural marriage. Now, were there other churches at the time that were doing this? Or is this like very much end up being a Mormon specific thing? It became very, very Mormon specific. There were other polygamists in the united states at this point in time but they were very few and far between okay so and it's not like this is like something that other churches in the area were doing it was... no people didn't take kindly to it in fact this is like like i said this was a this was a secret union and publicly joseph smith was against uh polygamy like the the party line was was uh completely against it however he was the first one to uh enter into a, a second marriage uh, to a, a woman named Fanny Alger. And some people have suggested that this was done to uh, cover up an affair, but others have said, you know, the, the, the church's uh, take on this is that this is when he started receiving revelations that polygamy was the intended order of family relations and that he was being told that while society in general wasn't ready for it, that certain like top members of the church it was time to start introducing the concept to them because this was the way that things were going to be going okay there is a big stress at this point in time on basically good pr if you know for lack of a better term mm -hmm. like you know fit in with your surroundings be good to your neighbors kind of thing don't compromise on your faith while doing it but you know make sure that you know, be a good the people ambassador. around you yeah be, you know, the, the people make sure the people around you are, are okay with you. You know, you want to you want to fit in. Uh, we're all Americans here. So. <laughs> Meanwhile, out in in Jackson, in Missouri, Jackson's the, the county that Independence is in. They were having problems with all these Mormons that were moving out to join the Missouri branch of the church because Independence wasn't that big, and they were cranking out converts like there was no tomorrow. There were hundreds of them. And they were sending them all out to this vanguard in Missouri and having them all settle there. Okay. So Smith was staying behind in Ohio uh, with Rigdon and kind of hammering out these details. But meanwhile, they're telling everybody, go there, go there. That's going to be the promised land. And it got kind of worked out at this point that Kirtland was like the eastern border of what would be the New Zion. Okay. Uh, the New Zion is a, is a very fluid concept. Yeah, suddenly it's Mormonism. no longer a physical city. It's now like an empire. Well, no, at this point, it's like the whole city is going to stretch that far. Oh, it's okay. big. It's wow. going to be big. 
what else for the New Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. But they're sending them all to settle in, in Jackson County. All these people who, who are not Mormon are going, number one, who are all these people? Like, why are we growing so fast? Number two, going, oh, shoot, they're all part of the same religion. And number three, going, they have a democratic dictatorship here. Because there are so many more Mormons than any other folk that if they decide that they don't want to shop at a, at a store and they want to shop at another store, they'll run that store out of, out of business. Their economic block is too powerful. Their political block is too powerful. Whoever they decide to vote for is going to win the election. And they do vote as a block. Okay, so they are like politically organized. Yeah, because civic duty is a big part of, of their organization as well. They see participation in the civic process as being critical to their faith which is very different than a lot of other church groups Mm -hmm. okay yeah well oh yeah that's that's very common to to kind of remove yourself from any sort of secular uh, power structures in any way shape or form no the the mormons are are very civically active part of that is again this this incorporation of american values into their faith Mm -hmm. of course somebody that's you know coming along 50 years after the the revolution is going to be all about things like voting. Yeah. Very into republicanism. That's that's the best. Things got so tense between the Mormons in Jackson County and their neighbors that they started trying to drive them out of the city by force. Like drive the Mormons out by force. They really didn't like them. And at first the Mormons tried not to really give them any reason not to not to like them, but mm-hmm. At a certain point, you get pushed enough and you start kind of pushing back. Yeah, sure. And things started getting a little bit ugly out in Missouri until finally they were pushed out beyond the city limits. And um, they would eventually have to, you know, about three years later after they sort of settled all this stuff out, they found in a new county called Caldwell County in Missouri outside of Independence that was just for the Mormons so that they could kind of contain their political clout. Okay. Because now they're not running independence necessarily. Yeah. And there's not enough of them to run all of Missouri, obviously. But it was this like really concentrated local power that was becoming a big issue. And I mean, by 1835, by the time that we're, you know, creating Caldwell County in 1836, the church has grown to between 1,500 and 2,000 members, which is huge in this area at this time period. Mm-hmm. Again, we, we talked last time about all of these different preachers competing for members. Uh, 2000 is a lot of members and they're yeah. diverse locations and they're preaching a non-standard form of Christianity. Like all of that is very, it's very upsetting for a lot of people and very, just like very unusual, very notable. There's, there's a reason that Mormonism stands out here, right? In 1836, the first Mormon temple is dedicated in Kirtland. Like they finished building it. It's ready to go. And that same year, Joseph Smith decides to take a break from, you know, working out the the finer points of theology and things like that to create something called uh, the Kirtland Safety Society. And this was billed as an anti-bank. There were some hinky things going on with the economy at this point in time in the United States. And there are two ways that you could read this, read what happens next. One is that Joseph Smith was a crook who was trying to steal all of his members' money. The other is that he saw how risky it was to put your money in a bank at this point in time in American history and wanted to provide some financial stability for uh, his congregation members. And there's really not a whole lot to kind of say one way or the other. Yeah. But 
The Kirtland Safety Society is created. It was never particularly well conceived. Like it wasn't that well set up. There was kind of an assumption that it would be doing like, you know, working with like $4 million when like the entire state of Ohio had uh, maybe nine and a half million dollars uh, economy. Okay. They, they didn't. So they dream big. Comprise 50% of the population. That's not how that worked. Not at all. They dream big. Also, probably they didn't know how to set up a bank, really. You know? It's complicated. It is complicated. Absolutely. And then, in 1837, something happens that's called the Panic of 1837. So you know that's going to go real well for them, right? Oh, shoot. It was a result of the suspension of specie payments, which is basically all the banks on the East Coast stopped honoring any like legal tender being traded for precious metals. So at this point in time, the economy is built on like it's, it's a, a gold standard currency, right? Yeah. And $1 should buy you $1 worth of gold. The banks stopped paying that out. They were worried about some economic problems that they were having at this point in time. So they stopped paying it out, which results in this panic that we're talking about. Everyone's worried about their, their financial affairs. Everyone starts pulling their money out of different banks and tons of banks in the United States collapse as a result. Seven-year recession. It's just an economic nightmare. So this sounds like good forethought on their part to set up their own parallel institution. Except that their bank collapses as a result of the same panic because oh, it's shoot. built on the same structure. Okay. It didn't have any of its own equity to bring to the table, really. It was set up basically like any other yeah. independent bank at this point in time, except it, and, and along with all the others, it, it lost its ability to back its currency. So it collapsed, taking with it a lot of money oh, from a lot of members of the Mormon church who had invested heavily in this. Because of, of course they did. Yeah. Because not only was it set up specifically with them in mind, but it was set up by a man that they considered a prophet. Yeah. And this is one of those spots where it's like, yeah, when, when finances and religion mix, like sometimes it goes really, really badly. And this is one of those things that you kind of look at about Joseph Smith and go, what was he up to here? Like, was this well-intentioned or was this a bit of a power grab? I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that. I can tell you that he was profiting from investments from that bank, but that's because he had invested some of his own money. And it's uncertain how much he necessarily lost personally out of this yeah. whole collapse. There's some evidence that he came out okay, which some people will point to as evidence of tampering on his, his part for his own benefit. But it's it's really inconclusive and either way it's not it's not necessarily due to poor management it's due more to extenuating circumstances but the question is if it hadn't collapsed at that point in time how much more had he, would he have been able to exploit it if if, if exploitation okay, yeah, that's was his a good point was his intent right this resulted in like a good 300 people leaving the church understandably and about a third of his like top members like his his inner circle administrators because they they did think that this was an intentional move on Smith's part, that this was a cash grab and that it had fallen through for him. But they, they lost faith um, in multiple senses of the word, including our old friend Martin Harris, um, who, who left the, the church at this point. Now, some of these people would actually go on to set up fragment sects of the Latter-day Saints movement. Because the main church that we think of, the one headquartered in Salt Lake City, that's not the only Latter-day Saints movement. There's a couple of other splinter groups. Really? Yeah, we're not going to talk about them too much because they're very, very small. Yeah, um, they must be. There's like a, basically, a, a they, they call themselves a Mormon fundamentalist movement who consider basically the, the modern LDS 
corruption of the original ideas of it and the modern lds really hates the term uh, you know mormon fundamentalists because it implies that they're corrupt in some manner and you know all of them have eight different names for one another but yeah there are there are splinter movements of this some of them very very almost amish level fundamentalist about their faith like ultra orthodox ultra orthodox like in terms of like removing themselves from the modern world style you know fundamentalist okay like i said we're going to focus on the main lds uh movement just for sake of ease and because that's really where the the history of most of this movement lies but yeah there, there are a couple of fragments um harris would eventually come back to the church when he was a very old man i think it was 87 that he came back to the church the the main branch of the the church and the interesting thing about harris is that even all the times that he called joseph smith a fraud and you know claimed that he was trying to steal everyone's money and had all sorts of terrible things to say about him he never once recanted his testimony about the plates hmm. not once so that's one of those things where i'll just put that fact out there and do with it as you will but yeah he was one of the original three witnesses and even with all the falling out that he that he had with uh with the main branch never recanted on that in fact he was asked to at one point and he basically said i saw what i saw and Joseph Smith was not lying about the plates, which is very interesting. He might have lied about some other stuff, but... Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's the that's the fundamental issue with Joseph Smith for for the Mormon church, is that there's some, there's some problematic stuff about him. We come back to that word, controversial, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily preclude him from being a prophet in a lot of people's eyes. Yeah. So, anyways. This bank collapses, and... The state of Ohio brings fraud charges against Joseph Smith. Because, oh, shoot. Well, you know, his finances were not in order for that bank. They did a bad job of running it. So he's in a real pickle now. Yep. And so he said, you know what? I don't think Kirtland's that important anymore. <laughs> Ohio's where, it, where it's at. And he, turns out Ohio was not the promised land. He booked it. He took off for Missouri. He was going to join the rest of his flock. And so it came to pass that they got the heck out of Dodge. Oh, goodness. Honestly. 1838 this whole tithing thing is established. So right on the heels of the banking collapse, Mormons are well known for the whole 10% tithe. They're pretty strict about that. And they have actually a fairly high percentage of their congregation does a full 10% tithe. They're a very well-off church. Yeah. Holy they have smokes. a lot of cash flow. So that's, that starts right on the heels of that bank thing. So again, one of those, I'll just put that out there and you can do what you want with that information sorts of things. But that's another thing that people point to as one of those very convenient revelations. And and then you get into the whole, well, is that because the you know the leaders are making things up or is that because they were divinely inspired to find a better solution for a problem that they encountered? It's semantic. Who, it doesn't matter. Say? Who's, who's to say? It doesn't matter to the story. It doesn't yeah. matter at all. The situation in Missouri has gotten so much worse. Establishing Caldwell County has not fixed the problems. Between so, the so they're now like... Out of the frying pan into the fire sort of thing. Yeah, because because everything in Missouri is just going like off the deep end. It's not good there. And it's gotten to the point where like there is violence between the Mormons and their neighbors who just want them out. They want them gone. They don't want them anywhere close to their homes. They think they're weird. They think that they're ruining Missouri. I guess they want to make Missouri great again. I don't know. <laughs> it's a temporary ban. Oh no. On Mormons. Yikes. I'm sure some of these Mormons are good people. But they're going to build a wall and they're going to make the Mormons pay for it. 
Well, they are very well funded at this point. They're very well funded. There's a lot of tithing going on. There's this inf- this big inflammatory sermon from Sidney Rigdon that basically helps galvanize the uh, the Mormons against persecution and basically says, you know what? We've let them push us around long enough. There is a point in a man's life where the right thing to do is to stand up for himself and his family. And there's this small group that forms within the Mormons called the Danites who are basically like a paramilitary militia sort of group who are devoted to this idea of protecting the rest of the congregation and being kind of at peace with the fact that they might die in conflict with other Missourians or maybe even with the government and that it's worth it. Like that the, the payoff in... So they'll, they'll basically die martyrs. Yeah, they're, they're okay with that. Because again, we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a long continuation in a spiritual sense after your physical life. And, and they've, they've bought into Rigdon's rhetoric about, you know, defending yourself is okay. And they're, they're ready to go. In 1838, something happens called the Mormon War, which gives you a little peek into how good this goes. Wow, a war? It's called the Mormon War. What happens, really, is that there's an election that year, and as good Mormons are wont to do, the Mormons head out for the polls. And there's a bunch of non-Mormon Missourians who decide that they're going to prevent the Mormons from voting. They're going to physically prevent them from getting to the polling stations. And basically, the Danites go, there's never been a more clear reason for our existence than this right here like this is what we're here for this far no further kind of thing right and so they open the way by force they they start fighting against these other settlers who are preventing them from voting to let their people get to the polling stations and there's scuffles all over the place and i mean this at this point it's more like riots than anything else but the problem is as much as as much as they were being attacked initially and an argument could be made for self-defense or even you know protection of like constitutional rights the mormons go to the legal system and the legal system doesn't help them the judges think they're weird and icky just as much as you know all of the people that they're representing right yeah they don't like the mormons and so they get no satisfaction through the legal system and they try going to the legal system for protection not even like restitution for what happened at the polling station but also for like some sort of like guarantee of protection because you know what is guaranteed in the constitution is like you know freedom of religion and they're looking to peacefully practice their religion and they're being interfered with by this population and they want protection which is a relatively reasonable request denied it's not upheld by the judges and they're getting more and more frustrated with all of this things keep escalating in terms of these little scuffles between groups of mormons and groups of non-mormon missourians until finally the governor got concerned about the level of violence in the state and he brought in the militia to pacify everything. And they did so very forcefully and the Mormons fought back. So the Danites at this point are in like open revolt. You could argue that. And certainly the state considered it that. They saw it as self-defense and they also saw it as a civil duty in certain ways because when you look at the rhetoric of the founding fathers it's very clear that they intended that if a government was ever in place that infringed on constitutional rights that it was the duty of any good citizen to rise up against that government overthrow it and replace it with one 
that did uphold the Constitution. And they were having their constitutional rights violated in their eyes, their freedom to practice their religion, their freedom of expression through voting. This was being violated. And so to not accept the authority of that militia is perfectly legal from their point of view, which is a very like this is a complicated situation. Oh, yeah. Because it's really easy to see both sides of this because the militia has just been brought in to stamp out some you know, violence between fellow citizens. And all of a sudden, they've got a bunch of people fighting back. So did they just try and pass this off as like, oh, they're like successionists or something like that? Oh, yeah. They, they saw them as traitors. Okay. There was an engagement called the Battle of Crooked River that the Mormons actually won against the militia. And so that leads to something called Executive Order 44. Oh, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> Where the governor of Missouri, who, by the way, is named Lilburn Boggs. Lilburn Boggs. Which sounds like a made up name just because of how good it is for a 19th century governor of missouri it's perfect lilburn boggs can you imagine just the accent on that dude because i can i can hear it in my head constantly oh yeah nope that'd be great executive order 44 stated that mormons must be treated as enemies and driven from the state of missouri and if they refuse to go executed so wow exterminated yeah that got uh Pretty violent, pretty quick. Yep, he was done with the Mormons. He's sick of them. They beat his militia. This is not cool. He's not okay with this. He wants them gone. The legality of this order? Kind of questionable. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at any point, is anybody, like, writing to the feds? Oh, yeah, but they're not really getting any support, really. Again, they they keep trying for legal recourse, and it's just not working in their favor. No No one is supporting them that that way so they feel like they have no course of action but to turn to armed defense so what do you do so do they have uh, another battle or do they just decide like they decide to leave okay the uh the mormon leaders were tried they were captured tried and found guilty of treason among other charges and some of them were actually executed but smith managed to escape possibly by bribing the guards what happened there is a little bit hazy but he got out and they decided, you know what? Maybe Missouri isn't. Isn't, isn't Zion. <laughs> Let's try Illinois. That's where we're going to go next. And they head off to Illinois. And the state accepted Mormons as long as they settled on some really terrible swampy land down by the river that they sold to the Mormons at exorbitant prices. But they let them stay. They let them incorporate their own town called Novu, which is a, they, they claimed was a, a Hebrew word uh, for lovely. And... You know, they, they, they allowed them to stay and also agreed not to extradite them to Missouri, which was a big deal. Yeah. And having autonomy for Novu is a big deal because they could essentially th- set up a little theocracy there under Joseph Smith and nobody was going to bother them. They actually managed to convert a few like higher level government officials, uh, most notably a guy named John C. Bennett, who at the time was uh, the Illinois quartermaster general, and they made him mayor of Novu. So they've got legitimacy in that they've got like a high-ranking state official from outside like brought in. Yeah. But they guarantee that they're not going to have too much trouble because they bought themselves a bunch of political capital by bringing in someone who knows all of the politicians in the area and making him one of their own. And this was working out really well until in 1841, feeling a little bit more comfortable in their own, you know, chartered city, they started revealing the doctrine of plural marriage to more people, including Bennett. And Bennett wasn't as good at keeping it a secret as everybody else had been and he was found out as a polygamist and 
they had to throw him to the dogs because at this point they weren't they weren't ready to go public with the fact that a number of like top church officials were polygamists yeah and i mean all this time you know the 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 higher ups in the church are marrying lots of people by the time he was done joseph smith had we're not entirely sure but maybe like maybe as many as 40 wives wow and that sounds terrible you get into some well you also get into some problems where it's like some of them were pretty young when they first married him like how young 13 14 and then and then you have to contextualize that in the the 1830s in the united states and all of a sudden like well okay it's not like weirdly young like it's not over the top young but it's still pretty young to be getting married to somebody Mm-hmm. like it's 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 one of those things that it just it rides a really fine line and marriage in mormon culture is also very complicated where you have civic marriages and spiritual marriages being two completely different things spiritual marriages lasting for all of eternity civic marriages being what you need to do to follow the laws of the land and yeah. sometimes they go together and sometimes they don't sometimes people who are spiritually married uh, are not married in a civic service and so technically aren't practicing bigamy under the law under their law well under oh under under u.s law because they haven't married them yeah adultery is still a crime but it's not bigamy and then you get the opposite which is that for women the only time that you're allowed to remarry as a mormon at this point in time is if your husband dies but even then it's only a civic marriage not a spiritual marriage so you're only really allowed to like be like spiritually married to one person it's called sealing and that, for women, they're only allowed to be sealed to one man, but men can be sealed to a bunch of different women. This mm. is a very clearly yeah. slanted system. Yeah. Now, okay. in more recent years, and, and, and sealing has taken on a much more abstract concept in the church today. And they, they recanted long ago that women can only be sealed to one person. They, they've allowed women to be sealed to second husbands in the in the event of uh, a death or something like that. But you know, that's, that's way long after we're going to be talking about today. It's, it's definitely a very problematic system. So anyways, they throw, they throw Bennett to the dogs over his polygamy forces resignation as mayor. They need to get some new leadership in there, but it really drew like a, a spotlight onto the, onto the community that they weren't necessarily ready for. They didn't want to make that big a splash in Illinois. Yeah, so they wanted to lay low. Around now, uh, Smith becomes enamored with Freemasonry, uh, which is kind of interesting. Huh. Yeah. It's kind he, of an interesting tie-in. Well, I mean, a lot of people at this point in time were Freemasons, right? Yeah. It's as much a social club as it is anything else, but he really got into the symbols and uh, rituals of Freemasonry at this point in time. And there's certain things that, you know, to this day in Mormonism definitely re- reflect that tie to Freemasonry. The most notable one being the Temple Garment which some people refer to as magic underwear, which you really, really never should do. That's incredibly insulting. But it's it's one of those things that's poorly understood and therefore mocked, which it's just a bad policy just in life. The temple garment is something that you get once you're first baptized. You need to be wearing it in temple. And it's something that you're supposed to be wearing underneath your clothes at all times reasonable. And, you know, there are there are times where you're allowed to take your temple garment off, but you need to put it back on as soon as reasonably allowed uh an example that the you know uh, you know I've, I've been reading a lot of mormon literature lately but one that i see come up 
fairly often is uh, if you go swimming, it's not reasonable to wear a temple garment while you're swimming. Yeah. But, you know, once you get out of the pool, you put it back on, go dry off and put it back on right away. So the temple garment, and it's not as prominent as it used to be. So a lot of people don't realize this, but it actually has a number of uh, symbols sewn into it at various spots. And two of the symbols that are sewn onto it on one side of the chest and the other are actually a compass and a square. Hmm. Yeah. The reasoning behind it has been kind of revised and expanded over the years, obviously, to make it less More, obviously Masonic. Yeah. But that's this is about the time that he comes up with the temple garment. So, you know, it's not hard to draw that line. In 1842, remember our, uh, our good friend, the, the governor of Missouri, Lilburn Boggs? Yes. There's an attempted assassination. Oh, no. He's shot in the head. He survives it. And the main suspect is a Mormon for basically the main, basically the main reason is because he's Mormon, but also because he's got a reputation as a killer. And he goes on the stand. There's no evidence against him that it was him. But he also uses one of the, one of the greatest defenses I've ever heard for an assassination attempt, which is everyone knows how good of a killer I am. He's still alive, isn't he? It wasn't me that shot him. Wow. That was that was his defense on the stand. He's just going to go, you know, man, that's some big cojones. I'll tell you what. Oh, I've killed people. They're all dead. Like, if I try to kill somebody, they die. This guy's still alive. One me. Man, that's that's such a boast. I, what a crazy boast. I'm just imagining the jury sitting there being like, yeah, okay, well, he's got a point. So yeah, it's one of those things you're like, that's so improper. But at the same time, they, you do bring up a good point. Who would brag that? It's such a long shot that maybe maybe he's on. Listen, I killed a bunch of people, but not this time. Not this time. This one was not my work. Yeah. Come on. I take pride. Yeah. I'm no, a hard working man like anybody else. <laughs> I put in an honest day's work killing just like just like any other killer. I'm good at what I do. Because a Mormon is suspected, and because of all the trouble with the Mormons in Missouri, Missouri calls for the extradition of Joseph Smith at this point in time. And Illinois refuses. But like at a cost of like a lot of political capital, like that was that was a big hit to the state to actually refuse extradition on fairly reasonable grounds to a fellow state. Yeah, that was a that was a tough decision to make on the part of the leadership of Illinois. But they stuck they stuck by the promise that they made to the Mormons when they first settled there. So, you know, at least they have that going for them. That being said, Joseph Smith got really worried about basically his entire legal standing because he's now been driven out of how many states? Yeah. We're, we're we're on 3. That's not great. It's only a matter of time. Kind of. And he's practicing polygamy, which is illegal. There's there's only a, it's only a matter of time before somebody exposes That's him, mad. right? And so they start looking outside of uh, government controlled territory for somewhere to establish a purely Mormon state, which is a thing that you could still maybe do at this point in time because there's still chunks of North America that have not been claimed by any particular government. At this point, Zion in the rhetoric is all of North and South America. They talk about spreading like the tent of Mormonism, which is why rather than like uh, dioceses in the Mormon church, various like smaller uh, jurisdictions are called stakes because they're all stakes in the tent. Okay. Oh, I just thought that one was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. A rift forms in the church over the polygamy thing. You know, once more and more people know about it, yeah. a lot of people aren't okay with it for understandable reasons. It's a... It's a, it's a difficult concept, and it's even more difficult in the mid-19th century, right? Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of people that Smith had proposed to their wives, and they didn't take kindly to it. Oh. 
So you could marry other people's wives. You could when you were Joseph Smith, man. Oh, shoot. Joe, what are you doing? Well, and I mean, that's the thing. Again, controversial, right? Yep. Keep, keep coming back there. He tried marrying other people's wives, or at least there were people who claimed that Joseph Smith tried to marry their wives. Maybe he didn't. Maybe it was slander. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that they published a single copy of a newspaper that they called the Novu Expositor. And it outlined details of Smith's theology that were problematic, namely the non-Trinitarianism. It talked about the polygamy. It basically aired out every single thing that Joseph Smith was worried about coming to light. And Smith responded by declaring martial law in Novu and going in and destroying the printing presses that those that the paper had been made on. And it never really saw wide publication. But you don't just go around smashing newspapers in the United States. Yeah. They take freedom of the press pretty seriously. And they also take declaring martial law pretty seriously, even when you've got a pretty long leash on your on your incorporated town, right? So the state of Illinois at this point is like, okay. You've caused enough trouble. This... This aggression will not stand, Mr. Smith is brought in, as is his brother Hiram, who's another higher up in the church, brought in for trial for inciting a riot. And they're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll follow your, your law. We'll come in and stand trial for this. When they got brought in, it was increased to treason. And they were kind of like, hang on. We, whoa, whoa, we didn't agree to that. And it's kind of like, well, too bad. You're, you're here already. On June 27th, 1844, the prison where Smith, well, the, the two Smith brothers were being held, which was under protection of the governor, the governor left for the day and he took anyone who was just kind of like neutral on the whole Mormonism thing, took them with him. And so all that was left was a detachment of anti-Mormon guards and a mob showed up at the prison and they managed to get into the prison with no resistance. Both Joseph and Hiram were shot to death by this mob who had all blackened their faces, but five men were arrested and charged with murder and all five were acquitted. And that's the end of the life of Joseph Smith. Wow. Kind of shot to death in the corner of a prison cell. Shoot. Not, not the happy ending. Not at all. It's, it's like I said, there's, there's a lot of people who feel a lot of different things about Joseph Smith. And, you know, I, there, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can kind of read his life and his legacy, but, you know, be that as it may, it's, it's not too many people that don't deserve a, fair trial especially when they're properly in custody and you know they're american citizens and they're under american jurisdiction that's that's just not right mob justice is an ugly ugly thing yeah yeah well he managed to escape three different times so his his number was absolutely up you're absolutely right but you know what if he deserved execution for treason the trial would have shown that yeah that's kind of my opinion on specifically on his death I, I, I just don't really feel good about that. The whole vigilante thing, they didn't need to do that. Yeah, no, and I mean, if he's in a prison cell, like... What was he going to do? Yeah, what is he going to do? If the story was he went to trial for treason and was acquitted and was going to go back and keep on doing the things that he was doing and the mob chased him down after that, I, I don't want to say I'd be sympathetic to that, but I think I would understand it a little bit more how it got to that point. Sure. You know what I mean? But man, he... He hadn't served his trial yet. Hmm. If he had been found guilty of treason, he would have been executed. They would have gotten the result they were looking for, but, you know, they had to take it into their own hands. Yeah, it seems it seems like a very un-American ending to a, a very American story. But the thing is, like, 
everything about the Mormon's journey so far has been very un-American. Preventing people from voting, driving yeah. them out because they're able to, you know, form economic or voting blocks, denying them fair uh, representation in the legal system, using executive orders to drive them out of a state wholly and declaring them enemies of that state. You know, like, I get it. They're weirdos. In the context of that, you know, that culture at that point in time, they don't fit in. They really, really don't. And people are uncomfortable about it. That's a bad reason to go violating a bunch of constitutional rights and taking law into your own hands. Yeah. Well, it's such a young country at that point, too. A young country built on a lot of very firm principles. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of trying to look for, like, you know, the other side to the coin here. But, well, I mean, the, the other side of the coin here is people are people and you can hold them to whatever standards you like. There are always people out there who will get to the end of their rope and decide to take matters into their own hands for one reason or another. Yeah, true death. It's just that, you know, for all their oddities, they did try pretty hard to fit into American life and they weren't allowed to fit in. And like, yeah, things got violent, but man, room was not made for them. No, and it, there's there's always a tinge of this in the story of any religion where it's it's very much of like, we don't want your kind around here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know? And especially when you start to talk about this concept of exceptionalism, mm-hmm. you know, people, people do not like other people who think they are exceptional. No, not at all. That is a recipe for disaster. Yep. Completely agree. So Joseph Smith's succession plan was to transfer leadership of the church to his brother, Hiram Smith, who was just gunned down right beside him. Dang. We got a bit of a problem on our hands. So uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about how they dealt with that. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Gary Hallman. All right. The Mormons are in some trouble. Yeah, all of a sudden the plan's out the window. Yep, this is a crisis of succession, and these never go that well. Okay, Um, so who's who's left to kind of take care of everything? Well... Before Smith was killed, basically the way that the church was organized was that there was the presidency, which is basically Joseph Smith and a couple of his closest advisors. But Joseph Smith was considered the president of the church. And then he had what was called the Council of Twelve, which was meant to symbolically reflect the Twelve Apostles. Okay. There was also, uh, when they were in Novu, there was a high council of Novu, which kind of was a, a, a larger body that was more concerned with like governing like uh, day-to-day day-to-day stuff rather than church stuff yeah rather than like doctrine Mm -hmm. and so all of this is going to come into play like right away because without Hiram there's no plan there's basically three bids for power here first one is Sidney Rigdon the preacher that's basically been gaining them all the I shouldn't say he's been doing all the work but man has he ever has he ever helped he's an incredibly charismatic man and he's been like very high up in the in the church organization more or less from the start um, so great candidate for a new leader, currently member of the presidency. So technically above the, the council of 12, like really, really well positioned for all of this. Next, we've got a man named William Marks who had led that high council at Novu. So he knew a little bit about actually running the day to day of all of this. And if the plan is to go and find somewhere outside the control of the federal government, you need somebody with a little bit of that style of leadership. Yeah, that makes sense on your team. Right. And then 
finally, you've got Brigham Young, who was head of the Quorum of Twelve Apostles or the, the Council of Twelve. You might recognize that name. Yeah, the name does sound very familiar. It's because of Brigham Young University. Okay. Yes. Hey, Gary, you, you got any guesses as to who they decide to have lead the church next? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with Brigham Young. Yeah, it was actually, it was pretty definite. Like there wasn't that much of a, of a struggle about it. it. Yeah, the, it was, it was pretty, mo- most people were in favor of Brigham Young. He was very well respected in the community, very well liked, uh, seen as a strong leader, both politically and spiritually. So excellent choice. And yeah, most, most people backed him. Although, you know, interestingly enough, you know, Joseph Smith's uh, widow had preferred uh, William Marks, the, the head of the High Council of Novu. And Rigdon did not appreciate not being given control of the church. He kind of felt like he had put in his time and that like now it was his turn to lead. Yeah. And he was so upset about Brigham Young getting the leadership that he left to establish his own church, which I think was, you know, it's kind of how we met him and it was kind of always the way I think he was going to go. Yeah. He seemed like the kind of guy that just needed his own, his own flock. Yeah. He needed to do his own thing. And so he, yeah, he, he left, he up and left the church and that's kind of the last we're going to hear from him. It wasn't a a Mormon sect. It was a, it was a more, you know, sort of standard. Traditional Protestant. Yeah. There's a a couple other fragment factions that break off at this point, but again, we're not going to follow them too far. Just, you know, it's, worth noting that that succession crisis was was the source of some of that fracturing but you know decidedly the vast majority of the church ended up uh, under brigham young out of all of this in 1845 so you know the next year after uh, smith is killed novu's charter is revoked and basically what that means is like now that's not a real town and anyone living there is basically under direct state uh, jurisdiction they continued living there but it was illegally yeah. And just to like give you some context of like how much the church has grown over the years, like it keeps adding people and adding people. Novu is 12,000 people. Okay. So they've got like a very strong. Chicago had 15,000 people that same year. Wow. So just to put things in some perspective. So they're now like. Novu is huge. Like massive. Yeah. Novu is, is a sizable settlement. So, I mean, as soon as their charter is revoked, they start looking for somewhere else to settle, right? And in, uh, in 1847, they finally decide on the Salt Lake Valley, which at this point in time is completely outside of U.S. control. This is in, like, the territory of California, which still more or less belongs to Spain, but Spain is, like, quickly losing control on all of its holdings in the Americas at this point in time. And, and really, you know, it's, it's basically outlaw territory at this point. Okay. And so they go, okay, you know what? This is as far from the U S government as we can get. We'll put down stakes here. They founded the city of Salt Lake city. And that was formed as like the center of a new entirely Mormon region. In 1847, Young is finally confirmed as, like, the president of the church. Like, it takes them a couple of years, usually, to, like, get around to confirming Mm -hmm. someone. Because being the president just doesn't just mean, like, hey, I'm going to call the shots on, like, you know, where we're going next or whatever. Being the president means that you have that direct line of revelation. To God. Yeah. Which they, they don't take lightly. And for good reason, I would say. 
you know, that's that's a pretty big deal. But Brigham Young is given that that confirmation. He is now officially the president of the Latter-day Saints uh, movement. And he now has that direct line, officially speaking. Unfortunately, the next year, 1848, the Mexican-American War ends. You know what? Earlier I said that uh, the, the California territory was under Spanish control. That's not true at all. It was under Mexican control. Got that wrong. I was going to say, I was like, wow, Spain's still in the game at this point. Yeah, like, no, that... no, no, not so much. I was, it's one of those ones where it was like coming out of my mouth. I was like, ah, I don't think this is right. I got to figure this out. No, they were out with the uh, Louisiana Purchase. Okay. But anyways, uh, no, it was, it was Mexican territory, not Spanish territory. My, my apologies. 1848, Spanish-American or Mexican-American War ends. The territory of California is ceded to the United States as part of the deal ending the war. And now Utah, Salt Lake City, is part of unorganized territory of the United States of America under federal control. And they're like, oh, man, we almost had it. <laughs> we were so close. And so Brigham Young was a pretty sensible guy all around. He had some out there ideas, but he was very practical about how to like go about a lot of this stuff, which was what made him a very well-respected leader. The first thing he did was rode to Washington and basically said, all right, you made where I'm living unorganized territory. I would like to propose a new state. It's a state called Deseret and Salt Lake City is going to be the capital and I'm going to be the governor of this state. And Deseret is going to cover about six states worth of territory or what would be six states now. It was massive. The, the proposed state was, was absolutely enormous. And they said, mm, no, I don't think we're going to do that. But Young went about basically governing all that territory as though he was already governor of a state. They put in place a legal system. They put in place a House of Representatives. They had this idea of like a fairly democratic system that was very important to them religiously as well as civically, right? As, as, a, as a religion that was founded on, you know, brand new American ideals. Yeah. Stuff like that's very important. In 1850, the much smaller territory of Utah is granted. And Young was made governor of it, so compromise there. But it's way smaller than he was expecting. He kind of kept ruling some of that other stuff. But, you know, he just didn't have a legal claim on it. That's all. For the most part, Utah was pretty above board, but they did also establish a parallel court system to the federal court system. It was an ecclesiastical court, which means that it's under church laws rather than federal laws. And if you had a problem, you took it to the ecclesiastical court. And if you didn't want to go through the ecclesiastical court, that's okay. You could take it to the federal court. You'd probably be excommunicated for it. Okay. So... He basically found a pretty good workaround to make sure that the law in Utah Territory was pretty much a theocracy. It was operated in a relatively democratic manner, but yeah, Mormon rules pretty much went. Now, they're feeling pretty comfy about their position now as rulers or as, as the people in charge of this territory. They go public in 1852 about plural marriage. They decide... Uh, time is right. We should tell people what we're up to. Like, yes, we believe in polygamy. And the United States goes nuts. Everyone who's not a Mormon, they just flip out over this. They think it's the weirdest thing. They think Mormonism is this crazy cult. They don't know what's going on there. They don't know what to believe about it. And really, they did it because they 
thought that they were safe, like beyond the reach of the federal government. Yeah. When in reality, you're never quite beyond the reach of the federal government. It was considered so abhorrent that in 1854, the Republican Party referred to polygamy and slavery as the twin vestiges of barbarism. Wow. So when the, you know, now pro-abolition Republican Party is muttering polygamy in the same breath as slavery, like you're, I mean, that's, that's the tolerant party. What, what's their views on slavery? The Mormons? Yeah. They're against it. They're okay. abolitionists. Yep. In, in general, they're fairly socially progressive. They just have a lot of very strict rules on the uh, future spiritual state of various people. Okay. Um, including some very problematic concepts of, of black people that we can get into a little bit later. But yeah, they, they absolutely don't believe that slavery, slavery should exist and were um, quite involved in the abolitionist movement. In fact, Utah was supposed to be, well, the South wanted Utah to be a slave territory. In 1850, things were starting to really come to a head with the whole abolition uh, issue. And there was the Compromise of 1850, which basically drew a line horizontally across the United States and said any new states below this line or south of this line are going to be slave states and any north of this line are not going to be slave states. It was a little more nuanced than that. And one of the nuances was actually whether or not Utah was going to be a slave territory. And the provision was basically, we're going to put it to what amounts to a referendum. And the people voted no. So this is pre-Civil War and they're already saying, no, we're not, we're not having slaves in this state. Other than the whole everyone in the country hating them for the polygamy thing, though, things were going all right for a while. Except that they live in a desert. And in 1856, they got hit with a really bad drought. Like a really bad drought. So this is kind of like the downside to living in the middle of nowhere. Pretty much. 1856 to 1858, they went through this massive drought period. They could barely grow anything. They had a plague of locusts, literally. Oh, shoot. Like, literally, they had locusts and grasshoppers, like, eating their terrible dry withered crops so they've they've got problems of biblical proportion I, you could say that yeah you you could say that gary oh, i'm so mad at you right now <laughs> you know i was angling for that right <laughs> i'm sorry it was it's it was awesome. such a low-hanging fruit I, I i set you up for that one that's my fault oh man anyways <laughs> you can edit that part out no, I loved it. I'm going to keep it in. Keep talking, Gary. It's all going in the show. You can't get around it. The, the parallels were obvious to them as well, right? And there were a lot of people within the church that it kind of turned to infighting a little bit. Like it got to a point where some of the rhetoric turned to maybe some of the Mormons around you, like maybe aren't good Mormons. And maybe those of you who haven't been good Mormons really need to do some self-reflection and, and you know, step up and and be better people because it might be your fault that this is happening to us and a speech was actually made by brigham young where even taken in context he says some stuff that's pretty pretty out there in terms of like how people need to like make amends for not being good mormons to the point of saying that basically he feels like no you know no amount of apology or asking for forgiveness or you know, good works can make up for how much some people have strayed. Maybe the only thing that God would accept at this point would be basically a gift of blood, which well, is kind of, which is a messed up that, thing to that say. That got dark real quick. And like I said, even in context, it's kind of like, yeah, that's pretty out of line. But what he was trying to say was like, 
you know, we all need to dig deep. And if that's what it takes to earn God's forgiveness and his favor again, just like I'm willing to make that, that leap basically are you. Well, this isn't like an actual doctrine that anyone latches onto. You don't have Mormons out in the streets pricking their fingers and, and blood you know. sacrifice. Yeah. But the media that is already just all over this polygamy stuff, hears this and is just bonkers. Just loving this. it. They love it. It is selling so many papers. First polygamy, now blood sacrifice. Excellent. Tell us more, please, Brigham Young. Please tell us more. And it doesn't look good to the point that they, uh, the, the president, James Buchanan, decides that Brigham Young probably shouldn't be governor of the Utah Territory anymore because you have a governor telling people to make blood sacrifices to end a drought. It's kind of bad. It's not it's ideal. Not good. That's not maybe. good. Because, I mean, he was way more involved in, you know, the day-to-day lives of citizens of Utah Territory than a governor really should be. Yeah. Because he was also their spiritual leader. That's not really ideal governor behavior. Separation of church and state and whatnot, right? Like, Yeah, for having so much struggle with collective freedom individual freedom seems like something that was just tossed right out the window yeah absolutely and so buchanan decides he's going to appoint a new governor because this is an unorganized like this is a territory not a state governors are therefore appointed and he's decided that young is not the man for the job anymore so he chooses uh, a man named alfred cumming to be the new governor and here's where things get a little a little dicey because he decides that just on the off chance that people are going to be upset about this whole new governor thing, he's going to send coming an escort of 2,500 armed men. Hmm. And we all know how well the Mormons have responded to displays of force like that so far. So they essentially responded with what could be classified as guerrilla warfare, warfare, I suppose. They did things like block off passes that the army would need to march through rather than directly engaging with all of these troops because they knew they couldn't take 2,500 actual U.S. Army yeah. forces. Like, that's 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 a formidable group of men. Um, they started harassing settlers that were moving through that area because 1858, this is like the California gold rush has been going for nine years and people are moving out to, to you know, the Oregon Territory and stuff like that. You've got lots of wagon trains going through. Lots of cases of dysentery. Oh, Oregon Trail. Lots of snake bites. Oh, but so many opportunities to load up on meat. You know, one buffalo do you for a week. Yeah, it's true. They started harassing settlers that were moving through. Basically, as a show of number one, you know, this is our territory and we plan to protect its sovereignty. And number two, hey, army, don't you have something better to do? Like protect the settlers that are moving through? Stop harassing us nice Mormons. And, you know, obviously they're doing this as covertly as possible, right? But this all kind of culminates in what's known as the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh-oh. Where more than 120 settlers moving through the areas are ki- moving through the area are killed. And initially the Mormons try to blame it on Native Americans in the area. But proof comes out that it could not have possibly been them and was definitely some Mormon people. And that was pretty much the end of this whole thing. I mean, this this period is known as the Mormon War because this you know this army forces is moving against Mormon guerrilla forces, and you know there there's no pitched battle here, but there are skirmishes all over the place. People die as many like by the end of this, about 500 people have been killed. Wow, most of them innocent settlers, which is 
pretty sad. And on one hand, like, yeah, the Mormons got way too defensive, way too fast. On the other hand, can you blame them at this point? Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's it's they're, it's a byproduct of their, you know, founding that they've it's they've ingrained in their point. culture that, you know, at some point the military is going to come out and drive them out of town. Yeah. Except they're not just, you know, settled on the outskirts of town at this point. They've founded their own city. They have their own territory that they've been governing for years. At this point, there's this is, no place left to go. Well, this is home. This is it. They've they've made their stand, right? Basically, the way this shakes out is they go to the negotiating table and they say, tell you what, we will allow Cumming to become the governor of the state completely unopposed. In fact, we will support him. Brigham Young will step down. No problems whatsoever. No opposition. The army can come into the state. We will leave them alone. They can stay around to keep the peace. All in exchange for a full par- a pardon for all Mormons in the territory. And they're allowed to remain in the territory. They're not going to be driven out at any point in time. So they stop the harassment campaign in exchange for being left to live their lives, basically. Which I think both sides were probably pretty happy with at the end yeah, of the day. it's a good deal. It's not a bad deal at all. I mean, there's continued tension between the church and the government over polygamy and that's going to keep going for the next 40 years it's a really contentious issue i don't think it's ever stopped i think it's still a contentious issue well absolutely but you don't have a a community nearly as large practicing at this point right no um or so concentrated practicing at this point maybe gross numbers across western society has gone up but you know you don't have a town full of them yeah i mean at the height of it maybe as many as 30 percent of mormons were practicing polygamy in some sense so you know on one hand it wasn't all of them on the other hand that's a significant portion like it was it was widespread it's a lot of babies yep some very complicated relationship dynamics and uh i can tell you how they solved all those problems uh whatever the guy said went and the women kind of had to deal with it yeah it was not kind to women 1862 the moral anti-bigamy act comes into play which makes bigamy a felony in all territories, enforceable by the federal government. This was signed into into law by Abraham Lincoln. So there you go. Big man himself. Big man himself. Lays, lays down the law. Not down with slavery, not down with bigamy. Both are bad. And that made bigamy a, a felony, not just like a misdemeanor, uh, punishable by five years in prison or $500 fine. Also did the conversion on that, $500 fine in 1862. About twelve thousand dollars. It's a big fine. Yep, it's not small. It's pretty hefty. In eighteen seventy, because they're they're seeing this act like not help, right? Eighteen seventy, they decide, you know what? I've got a plan. We're going to give women in Utah the right to vote. Huh. The thought being, you know, this is such a slanted system that if we give women the right to vote, they're going to pass anti-bigamy laws on a state level because they're going to support that legislation. And there's, you know, so many voting women that would be against it, plus non-Mormon people who will be against it. It'll be enough to get some things working properly. So that means that Utah Territory was only beaten by one other place in the United States for women's suffrage, which was Wyoming. But it backfired. The women actually supported the polygamy laws. Wow. Further entrenched. Probably what's happening here is that they're being told how to vote by their husbands. Yeah, I can't imagine it's quite the anonymous affair that it is today. Mm, yeah, and and besides, I mean, when you have a, a system as uh, as as entrenched as polygamy was at that point in time, it's not 
easy to break out of a system even when you are being exploited by it and you know when when you feel so powerless that you don't know where you could go that you weren't being exploited by right so yeah. if you're like in that system like what do you do you don't speak out because that's not good no you're gonna get excommunicated mm-hmm. absolutely so that backfired on the federal government didn't go as planned and in 1874 we get another attempt at stamping it out called the poland act this time the poland act transferred bigamy cases to federal control so not controlled by state legislation which means that it's no longer in the hands of utah territory whether or not or a utah territory judge i should say whether or not a polygamy case should be found guilty or innocent it's being prosecuted by a federal judge who is probably very against polygamy yeah brigham young died in 1877 so in the midst of this persecution due to polygamy but you know in general he had taken the membership of the mormon church and given them some pretty positive stuff which is you know utah which even today is is a massive center of mormonism oh yeah joseph smith was the the prophet that got them all started but brigham young was the one that got them established and like made them you know the force that they are and he's very well respected for it not to say that there isn't anything controversial about him either i mean he he also married dozens of women, but, uh, you know, in, in general, there was a little bit less problematic stuff with him than, than with Joseph Smith. And, you know, he was, he was a true believer. He worked really hard for what he believed in, and he led the people under him uh, as best he saw fit and, and really tried to do what was best for them and not necessarily what was best for himself, mm-hmm. which, you know, in a lot of cases, what more can you ask for from a leader, right? Yeah, no. Especially a religious leader. There's there's too many times where you hear about guys like these this that uh, end up making a, a grab for themselves. And no, that was that was never Brigham Young's style. Well, and I mean, clearly they did something right because to have such a lasting legacy, you know, speaks volumes about their organizational capacity. Yeah, absolutely. 1882, you get the Edmonds Act, which makes uh, bigamous cohabitation illegal. Because you were having people who weren't getting married civilly, but who were being sealed in the church, who were going, what? This isn't a crime. We're not married. Not under your laws. Yeah. It's Gad's laws. So a lot a lot of these a lot of these acts are just like closing loopholes. They're like, ah, I thought we had it this time. Yeah. So it makes this bigamous cohabitation a misdemeanor. So it's not quite as bad as actually marrying the person. But it also disenfranchises any polygamists. Anyone who's caught practicing polygamy has their right to vote taken away. Shoot. As well as other, like, you know, basic constitutional rights. So at this point, the state is still very much trying to, like, bust up the political voting block that is Mormons. But at this point, it's not even as much about that as it is, like, putting an end to this, like, this practice that most Americans find so incredibly distasteful. Yeah. I mean... That country went to war over whether or not slavery was okay in this era, and they were all united on the fact that polygamy was bad. So, like, morals are a pretty important thing at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Something people die over. Yep, absolutely. But, I mean, they're, they're going about it politically now, at least, which is something that the Mormons are perfectly fine with. Like, they're willing to work under that system, right? Mm-hmm. That's always been a major part of their culture. Oh, uh, sorry, the one other thing under the Edmonds Act is that they put in place... Uh, a committee to oversee Utah elections to make sure that there isn't too much vote manipulation by the Mormon bloc. But it kind of proves a little bit ineffective because 
what are you going to do? Yeah, it's, you can't discount people's vote. Well, it's tyranny of the majority, right? Yeah. It's just how democracy works. Sorry, you got more people that want a thing, and that's the thing that you're going to do. The big one comes in 1887 with the Edmonds-Tucker Act. It allows prosecutors to force wives in polygamous relationships to testify against their husbands. So they essentially they can't plead the fifth. Which is also like highly unusual like that's been a basic tenant of law right at this point for a while that you can't coerce a spouse to testify against their own spouse yeah or say anything personally incriminating and yeah. so you know the whole i plead the fifth thing is is well established at this point but no it 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 uh, it removes that um immunity that, uh, yeah and so now wives in plural marriages can not only can testify, but can be compelled to testify against their husbands. It ended the right of women to vote in Utah because that wasn't working out at all. In fact, they found that things had gotten worse uh, in terms of trying to get traction on the state level, the state level for anti-bigamy laws. And this act went so far as to disincorporate the church, confiscate its property, confiscate the property of anyone arrested for polygamy, and it basically drove the church leaders into hiding because. They were going to jail otherwise. At this point, about 50% of people in prison in Utah were there for polygamy. Wow. It was a big deal. Very big deal. This led to something called the 1890 Manifesto. So three years after this act, the current church president, a guy named, uh, his name's so hard to say, Wilford Woodruff, comes forward and says that he's had a divine revelation, that the church is going to officially end its practice of polygamy that peaceful cohabitation with their neighbors is more important than their laws about the state of marriage and that they needed to learn to work together. Throughout all this time, Utah has been petitioning to become a state, right? Because if you're a territory, basically you need 10,000 people and a plan for incorporation, and then you go to the federal government and they make you a state. And there are lots of other states that were created at the same time as Utah that took a few years to get there. Not that long, really. It's been 40 years. After the 1890 Manifesto and the official ending of polygamy, which, you know, I should point out that the church continued to, if not necessarily encourage it, then definitely allow polygamy for another four decades or so. Yeah. Um, to the point that they had to redeclare this man- manifesto in 1904. They're like, no, we are against uh, polygamy, even though they kept practicing it. Basically, what ended up happening there was they, they ended up letting polygamous relationships die out and new relationships they didn't seal more than one woman to a man, but they they let those play out. They didn't they didn't ban them. But anyways, so they put out this manifesto, and only six years later, Utah is finally accepted as a state on their goodness knows how many times bids. But it's pretty clear that there was a line, like there's there's an absolute connection between the polygamy issue and their lack of statehood. They weren't willing to admit Utah until they ended polygamy. That's how important this issue was in the United States. Yeah, and I'm sure at this point, like, there's just so many overwhelming benefits to being a state. Oh, of course. They don't have any federal representation without it. One of the conditions of statehood was that a ban on polygamy had to be written into the state's constitution. Wow. Yep. They They meant meant business. Yep. A lot of people draw a line at 1890 as the beginning of the modern era for uh, for mormonism because it's such a big shift in just the, the church's culture 
And that's kind of the moment where they started seeing at least some acceptance by other groups. They've functioned a lot. And I, I, I alluded to this in the first half. They've functioned a lot like a cult up until now mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. They had a living prophet who claimed to be able to speak directly with God. They practiced polygamy, sometimes marrying fairly young women, sometimes marrying girls. Very, you know, interesting cross-sections between personal money Mm -hmm. and the church's coffers. Well, the tithing issue. There had been attempts to, uh, at at various points uh, over the years, both under uh, Smith and under Brigham Young, to establish what could be viewed as a form of theocratic communism in which everyone would sell all of their property to the church and would receive payment from the church based on their initial contributions, basically. Mm-hmm. But pass all ownership to the church and allow the church to kind of mete out payment as it saw fit. Again, never really took, but there were several attempts over the years, uh, which led to some problems in the early 20th century because that smells a whole lot like Bolsheviks to me. Ugh. And yeah, they had, they had some issues there. Um, they hated Leninism. They really did, but... You know, one thing that was very difficult for people in the early to mid 20th century to swallow was the fact that in general, Christianity is a pretty communist or at least very socialist philosophy. Yeah, there is a lot of socialist uh, messages in the in the Bible and, you know, straight from, you know, straight quotes from Jesus, not just the not just the weird stuff back in, you know, back in the middle. Yeah, it was definitely a, a time period, I think, where the corporatist beginnings of the protestant church really started to evolve and that conflicted mightily with the very socially liberal message of the church you know you've got you've got one faction that's saying like we're we're basically building the kingdom of heaven on earth Mm. and that means we need to get to work we need to be industrious yeah and even if they don't believe in the kingdom of heaven on earth you still have this mentality of like, well, we are going to leave this earth a better place. Like this, you know, it's still considered like a very sacred duty that we've got to build something here that's lasting. Yep. Good hard work in the name of. Yeah, exactly. That's where you get that like Protestant work ethic really starts to come into its own. Absolutely. And that does not jive well with the like, Hey, you should like give away all your property and materialism is bad and sacrificing everything for the poor and the needy. That's kind of the name of the game. Well, and the other the other side of that is that socialism has traditionally been considered an atheist philosophy, right? Like it's, you know, read any Marx, he has some stuff to say about religion. Yeah. And any any attempts at socialism or, or communism have traditionally been uh, accompanied by a severe backlash against religion. And so it's you know, it's it's kind of funny that on the on the very surface level when you when you look at the way that communism was viewed in early 20th century america communism equals atheism atheism is bad you know godless communists and all that and so for someone to be incredibly devout and still act in a way that's associated with communism it'll get all of a sudden it's like it's not matching up for them properly yeah the nuance is lost maybe a little bit and it ends up meaning that a lot of uh, mormons end up under intense scrutiny uh because of their fairly socialist outlook on you know just just social support after after the Edmunds-Tucker Act, where basically all of their members 
property had been seized and all of the church assets had been seized and the church church had been disincorporated, which meant that all of those 10% tithes, you know, confiscated, gone forever. The church was pretty poor. Like they managed to get reincorporated, but they had no money left. And so they really got on the tithing push. Like they really pushed it hard and they went up from about, uh, you know, between 15 and 20% of members consistently tithing 10% to an all-time high in 1910 of uh, just under 60% of their members consistently <laughs> tithing 10% of their wages. I, did we did we explain tithing? I don't think so. No. Tith- tithing is a religious offering that's tied uh, directly to your income. So it's it's expressed as a percent of your income. And so if you are making $100,000 a year, you are sending $10,000 a year to the t- church at a 10% tithe. Yeah. It's also in like every biblical scripture out there has sure. some form of like, you know, literal tithing rule in it. It's not, it's not, it's not know. unique to you, to, to Mormons, but the, the other side of it is that a lot of the very hardcore tithing stuff comes from like old Testament, like, you know, like the, the law sections of the Bible. Right. Yeah. And a lot of denominations see that stuff as being kind of overwritten by, by the new Testament. Like we're, we're released from some of those. I think it's been a little bit more enduring because it's not like an allegory or anything like that. Like for a lot of like, it's, it's a literal section in the Bible where it's like, Oh, you should give 10% of your earnings to the church. Yep. There's not a story that goes along with it. It's like, this is a rule. You need to do this. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's lots of those laws that aren't followed though too. Oh yeah. And as we all know, they, the you know lots of churches based on the new testament love to pick and choose sure absolutely which particular old testament rules are going to keep and which ones are like oh you know this, but we in don't general need to be comes, kosher about these things anymore in general what it comes down to is if there's a conflict between old testament and new testament you go with new testament if you're a christian do- denomination and in the new testament there is the story the the parable from jesus about the people coming into the church and you know, one man gives, you know, so much money and he tells everyone and then another even richer man comes in and gives even more money. And then the old woman comes in and she puts in a single tiny copper coin and everyone kind of uh, derides her for giving so little to the church. But it turns out that that was everything that she had. Right. And, and the point of the story is that it's not about the specific amount that you're giving. It's about the intent with which you give. Mm-hmm. So with the generosity, it's about uh, not necessarily doing it with, you it's know, sacrifice, to, but, but also like not doing it like to, to lift yourself up, like to, to pr- publicly promote yourself kind of thing. And so all of a sudden the whole donations to the church thing becomes for, for a lot of denominations becomes what you can give, like give what you can comfortably give. The Mormons go, nope, 10%. And for a long time it was 10% before tax. So, it's pretty hardcore and a lot of people stick to it. So they make a lot of money off of that. And a lot of that goes back to the, the restructuring in, uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, trying to get back up on their feet because completely ruined by this, that, uh, that dissolution and, uh, and, and really needed to figure out a new source of income. So in the 20th century in general, the church has really worked hard on their image, like really worked hard on their image. They, uh, you know, they took that whole we need to work with our neighbors thing to heart after the 1890 manifesto, worked hard on social policy or social programs, lots of caring for the poor. They were a major force of education in the state of Utah until until public education kind of caught up. Once public education came along, they kind of receded. But, you know, education is still there in the form of Brigham Young University. That's 
I mean, it's well known that it's a you know private Mormon university, but that doesn't mean that they don't do some good work there. It's considered yeah. a decent school. Lots of emphasis on mission service, especially uh, post-Second World War. Really big on like just getting the message out there. And saw massive growth in membership after the Second World War because they worked so hard at that missionary work. It's well known that, you know, you get to a certain age as a as a Mormon and you go out and you put in like I think it's two 18. years. Once you turn 18, you do your, yeah. your service. Yeah. And for a while, they reduced it back down to 18 months, but they put it back up to two years. And like, that's that's what you do. You go out and you spread the word for two years of your life. That's, again, pretty hardcore. Yeah. But it's paid off in membership for them. They had some trouble with race, which shouldn't be surprising from an incredibly American uh, religion founded in the 1820s. Yeah, I think I rem- remembered like they, they didn't allow African Americans well, to join the church until fairly recently. They were allowed to join the church. They weren't able to join the priesthood. Okay. And the, pr- the priesthood is a little bit different than what you would think about in most religions. Like the level at which you technically are part of the priesthood is like pretty low in like your initiation in the church so you can technically become a member but but not much more than that like it's hard to become like a uh like a member in like full adult standing without being a member of the priesthood or essentially impossible um the problem is that they're also going to the caribbean and to africa Africa and you know spreading the word there and you know they don't have any white people to be priests for them there so they kind of had to change their policy because remember way back when we were talking about their cosmology of the three different groups that in the, in the battle between uh, Jesus and Lucifer. Yeah. And there were three groups. There were the, the ones who went with Jesus, the ones who went with the devil. And there was a third group who didn't join either side. Mm-hmm. That third group who didn't join either side, according to the, uh, the book of Mormon had their, uh, had their skin darkened in punishment. And that's where black people came from. Ooh. Yep. There was also a line about joining the Mormon church and becoming white and delightsome, which was later changed to pure and delightsome, saying that it was a, a poor translation, basically, which is a thing that they do every once in a while, but don't like to admit to because the translation came directly from Joseph Smith and should have been a perfect translation because it was divine. You know, like it's... Yeah, it, it's it's a tricky issue for them. But, you know, in 1978, they officially allowed um, black people to achieve any rank in the in the church that that anyone else could achieve. So I don't know. They slowly plug away just like any other religious institution yeah. with these social issues. And yeah, they've had some they've had some real problematic ones, but they've really reinvented themselves because right up until 1890, I'm telling you, like. That sounds like some Jonestown stuff. I said it before and I'll say it again. Like they've got a new religion with a charismatic leader and some problematic marriage practices and a propensity towards uh, armed resistance against yeah, the federal government. A serious different way. Easily. Easily. Yep. And so I don't know. It's it's a it's a fascinating it's a fascinating history and a fascinating religion in that way. It's you know, at a different time, at a different time that could have ended very very short into its history yeah no super interesting yeah anyways to come you know any any more modern number one it gets a little bit boring because it becomes sort of a mainstream religion or a religious group without too much controversy other than social controversy and 
that and if we come any any closer to now we kind of leave the realm of history into current events so we yeah. don't want to do that but other than touching on that stuff really briefly in the 20th century like that that 1890 manifesto that uh, that abandonment of polygamy that's it's kind of the the start of the modern and i think a good place to like end our story about about the mormons you know mentioning that other stuff is good but that's 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 really the place to leave the story off it tells you enough i think about their their history to give some context about about their you know present activities to maybe shine a little bit more light on this somewhat mysterious group excellent so that's mormons what did you think yeah that was great you enjoyed that such an interesting story yeah they're they're a fascinating group their their belief set is really interesting and such a quintessential american religion Mm -hmm. yep absolutely i am i'm blanking on who it was right now but i some somebody called it like the most american religion oh yeah absolutely something like that i forget what it was just the way it interacts with the founding principles of america and yeah rolling manifest destiny into your religious beliefs and uh having a biblical uh rationalization for the existence of native americans and like just oh yeah just great oh man all sorts of good stuff in there it's 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 very interesting in that context though and like i don't know i was always fascinated with the idea that they believe that jesus got done preaching around israel did the whole crucifixion resurrection thing and then ascended into heaven and went oh shoot hang on i forgot about those guys i gotta make a quick stop you guys in new york state Oh, yeah, that's just too perfect. It's just, it's, it's typical New York, might I add. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. What does that, Gary, don't, don't alienate people in New York, please. I got, I, I love have, New York. I have listeners there. I love New York. Everybody loves New York. New York's great. Yep. Gotta love upstate. Yeah. But, but really what, a, what an amazing story. Just like getting pushed out over and over again. Uh, honestly, I like reading into all of this stuff. I have a lot more sympathy towards the journey that they had to go through to find a home for themselves. Oh yeah. It goes to show just how precarious the situation was back then. And, you know, you like to think of, you know, once you've got the constitution enshrined that it's very much like, Oh, this is set in stone. And now these abuses don't happen anymore. When in actuality it's, Oh, the balance of power really hadn't quite worked itself out. And America was still in a place where when you're on the frontier, Really, really, the people with power can do whatever they want Absolutely. to a certain extent. Yeah. And abuses happen with frequency. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, you think that you get that constitution down and all of a sudden you're a perfect enlightenment society. No, no, not at all. It takes them a long time to work out some of those kinks. I mean, in a lot of ways, the United States before the Civil War is just not the United States that we think of no at all and not just in the south in the north too like it was it was a very very different place but anyways yeah that's that's about all I have to say there all Um, right they have a really good choir check them out sometime yeah if you uh world famous if you ever get the chance go see the book of mormon it's a treat it's amazing one of my favorite things about current church of latter-day saints is that they take something like Book of Mormon and instead of just like suing the pants off them, they look at it and go, all right, well, this is bringing us attention. Let's capitalize on that. And then they advertise at the Book of Mormon. 
Oh yeah, I, actually the the first time I saw it was was on Broadway. You saw it in Broadway. Yeah, sweet. And uh, the entire section that I was in with my my wife Erin, she like we were surrounded by a Mormon tour group. That's awesome. Which was amazing. You know, half the people there had a great time, and the other half not so great of a time. Um, you but, know, I'll 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 be straight with you, Gary. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's so good. I know. I've heard. <laughs> I'll see it eventually. But from what I've heard, the, the, the story's a little bit challenging. Uh, yeah, that's putting it mildly. <laughs> that's putting it mildly. I, I, was, I was going for the understatement on that one. You know what? I mean, ultimately, what comedy does is humanize people. Absolutely. Yep. So I think, I think in, in that respect, like, especially with religion, it's so easy to take these things, se- like, too seriously. Sure. Like, it's a very self-serious subject. Yep. So when you add a little bit of brevity into the situation, it's a lot more humanizing. Like, obviously, all these characters are larger than life and it's made up oh. and it's designed to offend and educate all in the same thing. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think it's done probably a lot of good for the community because it's introducing a group of people in like a more normalized light. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that, that oh, man, that play from the church where they, the, the playbills on the back where it's like you've seen the show now read the book. Who came up with that ad? Genius. Give him a medal. Yeah. That guy, you know, he just had that like light bulb go off in his head. And he was like, guys, you got to come over here. You got to see this. You want proof of ongoing divine inspiration? There you go right there. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me. About yeah, Mormons thanks for today. having me. It's a really good time. Yeah, no, this was great. Finding acceptance wasn't easy for the Latter-day Saints movement. The history is one of rejection and revulsion by the United States, full of violations of the civil rights that they hold to be so important. This process certainly molded the church, but also reflected the evolution of America, tying the two together in many ways. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the fall of the Soviet Union. That episode will be up on September 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.